Hello friends, this is Jake Pardee, your guide through the Roji universe. Welcome to the Art of Roji podcast, where we discuss the Roji saga, how the music and art is created, and what it all means. Today on the Art of Roji podcast, our special guest is the mixing engineer of the Gummin of Silver City, Dub Fader, also known as Craig Welsh. Craig is one of my all-time favorite producer engineers with his productions with 10-Foot Ganja Plant, Giant Panda Gorilla Dub Squad, John Brown's Body, and many, many more. And because of Craig's significant engineering accomplishments, it can be easy to forget that he is also the drummer of 10-Foot Ganja Plant and has created so much wonderful music in his role as a musician as well. In today's episode, Craig and I discuss his style of creating dub reggae and how it relates to the history of the art form. So a big thank you to Craig for being on the podcast, and I'd also like to thank Nate Silas Richardson from 10-Foot Ganja Plant for his help in editing the podcast, which you're about to hear right now. Welcome to the Art of Roji podcast. We're happy to have you here. Now, enter the Roji universe. All right. Craig, welcome to the Art of Roji podcast. Thank you. Here we are, sitting in Rear Window Studios. Just want to ask you a little bit about your methodology when it comes to dub, having come from analog and now come into the digital era and and seeming to favor digital sometimes. Yes, it's interesting. I do think everyone should start with a very simple Mackie or whatever mixer and learn signal flow. Signal flow is the most important part of recording with gain staging. Most people use too much gain. You kind of don't want to use more gain than you need to because it's just coloring, you know, microphones and things like that. In the old days with the tube mics, for instance, a lot of times they just plug them into LA-2As right into the back. No mic preamp at all because they have a hot enough signal. You don't need a microphone preamp. And a lot of people look at those recordings as being pure and natural sounding and things like that. And that's mainly because they're not using a lot of gain from a preamp. Mm. Because the preamp has a transformer in it, most of them, and that colors the sound. And some people like that color. Some people don't. Some people don't know what that color is, but they think they like it. I think it's all about experimenting because you can read all you want and go on forums and listen to people and things like that. And that's all great. But you really got to put your ear on the source and, you know, figure out what you like and what's working for you and in what space it is in. And I mean, the room is so important. I think that's one thing most people don't realize is the room you record in alters the sound maybe more than anything besides the actual instrument you're recording. And you have to have a good room to record good sounds. And in the 70s, a lot of the rooms weren't good and they baffled them down and, you know, choked them out. And you got that dry, dead 70s sound, which is also very cool and people enjoy it. But in a good room, you don't need to do that. To get a dry, good sound, you really don't need to baffle it down. But in a boomy, big, live room, you do have to do that. So, yeah, there's lots of ways to look at it. I think now, because of electronic production, a lot of people might have access to a couple channels of recording in, and then they have the whole digital suite. And if you didn't grow up playing in a band, but you were 
wanting to make dub music, you might start dragging samples around and mixing things and everything. Do you still think that it would benefit someone to, say, create your digital tracks? I remember doing this a bit, creating a MIDI band, right? Mm -hmm. And running them out through, say, your guitar pedals or something like that to be able to get into the tactile analog world? Or do you think that you can start with the laptop and and run with it and still learn dub itself? Because I I think there's electronic music and there's dub and what makes something dub? Does it have to be a reggae type of thing? Or Scratch used to always say you could kind of dub anything. No, anything can be interpreted in the way that you know, reggae dub interpreted reggae, just pulling apart the music into its barest form and accentuating what that person feels is the good thing about that song or artist or whatever's happening and enhancing it and drawing attention to it and, you know, pushing the other things away from you. I think if you ask three engineers to do a dub deconstruction of one song, you'd get three very different things back from them. Right. It's an interesting point because it brings back the fact that dub really is a remix tradition. But at the same time, there were artists like Scratch Perry who were making like a roast fish collieweed type of album. And I think about that as being like a dub album, but it's like its own baked in music that is a work. I've always seen it as that there are dub albums that are the remix type of bass heavy thing. And then there seems to be like baked in dub from the beginning. And growing up, you know, Tenfa Ganja Plant is a huge inspiration for me. I always felt that Tenfa Ganja Plant was like a baked in dub type of sound where we would listen to it and we were still learning about reggae, but we were thinking about a song like Blood Money as being a very dub sounding song, but it was written to sound the way that it was. It's not a remix of a track, right? No. So do you think that there can be dub that is the first version of the song? Or does the dub have to necessarily be a remix? Well, I think it's an instrumental at that point. Through Jamaican music history, of course, it started out being version, which is dub. It's just they didn't really manipulate it that much when it was running without the vocal. And then Lee Perry, of course, he is the quintessential, as you said, baked in sound where there isn't a ton of manipulation maybe going on in the moment of it. The sound is just morphed in a way that makes it cohesive and gives it a color or a vibe or, you know, makes it identifiable to that song. And I think that's the biggest thing with someone like Lee Perry having an identifiable sound, you know, or like People talk about Carlton Barrett as soon as he hits his, you know, snare drum, you can tell it's him and it's identifiable. Right. And that's how I started out. That's what I pulled from the King Tubbies, the scientists, the Lee Perry. They're all drastically different in their style, but it's all very identifiable as soon as it comes on, who's doing what. And that's what I took away from that music more so than the techniques of it. Because those are personal on how people hear the actual remix happening. But I always was drawn to the fact that you could tell, even though no one was playing or singing, it was very obvious who was mixing the track. And I felt like you didn't hear that in popular music. Mm. All the mixes kind of 
sound the same. It's not super identifiable. There are some people like Chad Blake who stand out. I don't know if I could identify him, but I would probably, if I heard one of his mixes, would probably stop and say, oh, who did that? It's it's interesting. And then I would find out it's him. But the majority of pop music, the engineering doesn't put a stamp on the music mm. of who did it or where it came from or something like that, which I think is unique to not just to Jamaican music, but it is unique in Jamaican music. I think that's brilliant. It's one of your characteristics to have a sound that carries across your works. And I think that that's something that's discussed on the Conversation and Dub podcast too with James and Mark, that as soon as I sent them the tracks that we worked on with Roji, we're like, okay, yeah, I can definitely tell this is a dub fader mix. So mm -hmm. do you think that you deliberately cultivated that? Or is it sort of like as a musician, you find your voice as it goes on? Do you make an effort to say, I'm going to make something sound like one of my tracks? Or do you just hear how it should go, you mix it, and it always ends up coming out like one of your tracks? The latter, I, I believe. But of course, when you're doing it, you don't necessarily think that just like, uh, you know, a musician always thinks they're playing different, unique stuff from what they played yesterday or whatever like that. But in the end, to the outsider, they can hear it more than the actual person doing it. So... Every time I'm working on music, of course, because it's all filtered through my brain, you tend to make it sound a certain way that you hear things and everyone's ears are different. You know, what's heavy to one person isn't heavy to another person and what's slow to one person isn't slow to another person and all those different things come into play, but it all... It all goes through a filter when I'm working on music with people. Even if I didn't record it, it still goes through this filter and comes out sounding like me, even though I tend to believe that I'm doing something different on it. But I guess I'm not, maybe. Maybe it's the material coming in that's making it feel different, even though I'm doing similar things, maybe, because all artists kind of do similar things. That's right. their art. But yeah. the big thing is to try to take the artist's work and not manhandle it in such a way that you get out something completely different that doesn't reflect them. You don't want to bury them. You want to enhance what they're doing. And that's where a lot of dub music can sound sleight of hand. And modern dub music can sound forceful and over-manipulated and suffocating in a way to an artist. Mm. That's really interesting. I thought it was fascinating to bring in the tracks and to be working on them with you because it seemed like we really didn't talk about what they should sound like. We did a bit about the story of Roji, but it seemed like we pulled up the tracks and went for it. And we mixed one song at a time. And it seems to be that there's very little, could it be this, could it be that? It seems to be with your level of experience that you pull up the tracks and you start to go in a direction. And you had said to me like, hey, by the way, I don't usually have anybody sitting in here when I'm mixing. So this isn't, you know, <laughs> a common <laughs> thing for someone to be sitting behind me when I do this. But I was grateful to be able to be there while you were mixing because I learned a lot. But also, it's just fascinating to see you go from hitting play to immediately working towards something. So mm -hmm. for the average listener, a lot of us might not even know about what mixing engineers do. So do you think that you're hearing an endpoint as soon as you hit play that you're working towards? Sort of like a painter is, say you're looking at a landscape, you're trying to recreate that. You can see it or you're imagining it. 
or are you trying things out? How does that momentum start where you're immediately working towards something? Whereas a lot of times I pull up faders and I'm just trying to move things around until maybe it sounds good. It seems like you have a very deliberate way. You know what you're after and you are immediately working towards there. So how does that come about? Is it experience or is it an inner ear vision? How does that process work for you? Well, first of all, I think to start going on it immediately is really where the benefit is in the mixing because you only have so long before your ears, I wouldn't say shut down, but they tune out a little bit. When you first put on new music, your hearing is very aware of what's happening. So whatever you can get done in the first, I don't know, five to eight minutes is usually where things are going to lay. You're not going to make any big changes after that, usually. That's where I think, you know, the experience of an engineer, you see it a lot in the live setting when a band first starts and the engineer, he's going for it, trying to just get the thing up and running, pleasing to the people as fast as he can. When he gets it there, you'll hear throughout the night slight changes. You know, the bass will get tighter, the vocal will get clearer. You might start to hear a little more reverb or echo on things and stuff like that. But the initial sounds were generated usually in the first eight minutes. And I think that's the engineer's kind of DNA, what they hear in their head very quickly. And that's kind of what I was doing with the Roji stuff is listening through the song, first of all, just to get an idea where it's going and what's going to work and what's not going to work right off the start in the first minute or two. I'm not the type of person who likes to like solo out instruments and you know, start with that kind of a concept. I like to treat it all as a whole. And if something's rearing its head over and over again, yeah, solo it out and see what's happening. Like, you know, especially on tracks that I haven't recorded, sometimes I need to solo them out just to know what's actually on the track because it's labeled bubblegum or something like that. But yeah, I think the beginning of the process is very important. And I do hear it within the first two or three minutes. I hear something that it should sound like when it's done. Yeah, I think that's so cool because you, within that five or eight minutes, have gotten your basic sound together. And for me, it's exciting because you hear the tracks that I've worked on immediately become balanced and larger and in a big way. A bit of the special effects part of it on the Gummin of Silver City, how do you think that the digital world has given you some different options because i think if you listen to track four the voyage at sea during the drum solo there's a lot of things that sound like water in caves and there's all sorts of effect sounds that are either long reverbs or delays and things i might not even understand what's on the chain but how have you gone about creating those? How has that evolved from, say, in the past, having some pedals or a space echo? How do you shop for the type of effects you want to put on any given instrument? In the beginning, I think the first minutes are important for that. So all engineers have tools they gravitate towards, and they generally don't change them that much. You got to learn those things. You know, it's just like a guitar amp or a or a guitar or a pedal. You have to learn that thing and incorporate it and see where it falls into your palette of sounds. And if you do 20 shows live and you're like, I've never stepped on this phaser pedal. Well, 
phaser's just not for you, maybe, and it doesn't incorporate into your sound. So you take it off and you put a ring modulator on it. Or, mm-hmm. So everyone's gone through a process in recording and mixing where they pull on certain things and then leave the door open for that wild card thing that might take that song to a new level or add something to that song. I think once you hear analog effects, like when I started out with Biphaser and a Space Echo, when I first took that out live, I don't really remember anyone having that stuff like on the road. House engineers and people used to look at me like I had 12 heads, like you're going to hook that thing up to this and do what? And then just the whole act of actually mixing a show. Most engineers didn't do that. It's a lot more common nowadays with the internet and things like that. It was harder to find stuff and maybe it meant more back then. You know, in the 90s, finding things out like that and honing it in on the road for me with those tools. I always felt like a mix to keep your attention in your ear has to move. So gradual movements with EQs on effects and things like that, which nowadays you can do just through LFO devices. You know, back then I used a maestro parametric filter that was a wheel. And I would just keep it next to the mixing board and just you know, slowly move it around. Did you hear it? No, not really. But did it make your ear constantly want to engage with the music? Yes, in a subliminal way. If sound is static, your ear tends to tune out to it. So if you can keep the mix moving in some way, you tend to listen more intently longer. And I always tried to do that with the mixes. That's interesting. Do you think that when you started to join JBB and the groups that you did, you're a member of the band as an engineer. Is reggae the key, or do you feel like it's common to feel a member of the band as a mixing engineer in other styles of music? Do you think that being directly in control of the effects made it more enticing for you to become a mixing engineer because you were working within reggae? Do you see what I'm trying to ask? Yeah, I mean, when I started, honestly, I got pushed into the van kind of thing. You know, my cousin Kevin was going on tour a lot and I think they just had a lot of hard times with sound engineers, both in clubs and then the ones they tried to hire I think eventually he was just like, hey, do you want to come and do this? I was at Berkeley at the time. I was like, yeah, okay. So moved back to Ithaca and learned from Alex Perrielis at Pyramid and at The Haunt and a bunch of people in the Ithaca area. And at the time, I was just trying to keep it together, really, you know. But I knew I had a job to do, which was the band. They were giant Gregory Isaacs fans, the Itals, the Gladiators, and things like that, and put everyone who joined that band through a boot camp, in a sense, of engulfing yourself in that music and learning what made it work and telling you, you know, how they felt about it. And then you had to do the rest of the work on your own and figure out how to incorporate that into the band. So in the beginning, it was, I was just trying to keep my head above the water, Mm -hmm. you know, and get things to sound good and then try to incorporate these ideas of things that I had heard on these records in some way, shape, or form. 
But a lot of that is also the music. You know, you can emulate any of the old reggae records, but really what makes those records sound the way they do is the arrangements and the parts that are being played really influence how those effects come off. And I mean, you can see it nowadays, even the masters of it, like scientists and whatnot. You might say maybe nothing he's done in the past 20 years is as strong as Space Invaders. And it's like, well, yeah, there's a point to that. And it's not because of the equipment. It's because the music has changed a lot. People play that music differently. And the people who played it back then, unfortunately, most aren't with us anymore. But people aren't playing like that anymore. And I think the way that stuff comes off has a lot to do with the way things are being played, either the intensity or the rhythmic groupings that they're using and the way they fill inside of different lines. And it's a package deal, I think. Right. And I think that that's a really interesting part of it, the band in the room aspect of it. Do you think that the digital era, the original digital era with Steely and Cleavy created almost a pause on dub because now we didn't have a band to remix and to change? I think there's lots of great digital dub style music. I don't think like drum machine or programming or anything changed dub. I mean, dub music, even in Jamaica, was very much an outcast style of music. It wasn't really accepted. I think in many ways, it's more accepted to the general public now than it ever was even where it was created. Right. Do you think that something to do with that is the meditative quality of the fact that music listening has changed so much? In the past, you would have had to put on a dub record. Now you could hit dub reggae for sleeping playlist on Spotify and, <laughs> and just kind of dig it or, or go on a, a road trip and listen to 10 hours of like a right. soundtrack. You know, the Roots Radic style of dub, the backbeat style of dub is relevant now because I feel like a lot of Americans can relate to that because that's a rhythm we're very uh, familiar with in either Led Zeppelin to Run DMC. They all use that basic formula of obviously the Roots Radic stuff, it has a different feel, but the general rhythmic aspect of it, the bass drum on the one and the three and the snare drum on the two and four, I think is very easy for most people to listen to because it just, you know, it can be the Beatles, it can be Led Zeppelin, it can be mm. whatever. And I think that's why, you know, nowadays most reggae bands generally play that over like the one drop style. So that's really interesting to me because it is very common to lean into this Channel One Roots Radix. I call it the tough type of thing. It's got a certain tough rock approach. For the last track on the Roji album, when I was talking to Sam Ward about the grooves, I was saying to him, one thing we're trying to go for this last song, The Arrival in Paradise, now that the gunman has arrived on this island, is a little bit more of that Carly Barrett thing where the only way I knew how to describe it was it's got more bounce and there's like more fills, but they're all tucked into different places. And as a drummer, I think you have that in spades, you know, all of your intros of 10-foot songs have that type of bubbly bounce. So do you think that that style of the Carly Barrett, I always think about the Burning record as being so definitive of this style that to me sounds extremely African or Caribbean music that has a folk element to it that doesn't feel as 
rock to me. Do you think that that music isn't as emulated in the modern day because of it just being hard to play? Or is it the fact that you need the people in the room to get the swing together? And how does that affect the music history? Because I do see what you're saying, that there's a lot more of the rock side of the reggae thing than that sort of bounce folk music thing. Well, I don't want to generalize, but it's hard not to, I guess. But when most of the reggae bands, their influences are bands like Sublime who played rock like that. And it's not a fault or anything. It's just who they are and what they want to do. They just haven't gone back far enough. The one drop style and, you know, Mento, Ska, all that stuff. It's back 20 years before all that. Right. When it started. So I don't think people have gone back there to really understand that or listen to that. And like I said, I think as soon as they hear that backbeat in Sublime or any of the other bands that came out of the 80s or 90s, a lot of it's that style. So it's easier to listen to. It's definitely hard to make the music that has that what I call the well-oiled machine sound. Yes. Everything fits into each other. It's like, you got to have that feel and everybody's got to do it. Seems to be simultaneously in order to get those feels to happen. Because if the drummer just lays down a bunch of stuff, you're not going to necessarily know the gaps. But if you were all in the room and you've Mm -hmm. all got these parts, they all lock in with each other, right? Sure. And 10 Foot Ganja Plant, with your way of making records, do you think that that's why you're able to do feels that are the way they are? Because you're playing them together live and you're not saying, I'm going to lay down drums and then layer everything? Well, yeah. I mean, with 10 Foot, everything is written and recorded in the room and then kind of never played again. So it gets the energy of playing the music for the first time because it really is. It's not a lot of bands, they write songs, then they go on the road for six, eight months, and then a year later, and the songs developed throughout that time playing it live and come to a definitive version as they feel. And then they go into the studio and try to capture that. And that's different from the way we approach it. We approach it as like Motown or Stax or, you know, Studio One musicians where their job was to just be in the studio from nine to five, Monday through Friday, cutting rhythms. So very rarely do we have vocals written for songs. It's happened a few times, but usually we think of it as rhythms and then we kind of listen to the rhythms at the end of the day and people are kind of like, oh, I I think I got a tune over that rhythm. You know, they wait for the rhythm to inspire the vocal, more like back in the old days of voicing rhythms. Obviously, some artists like the Gladiators, they never voiced rhythms, so to say. They wrote songs. So we're kind of halfway in between the guy who just voiced rhythms, which is a lot of the popular Roots Radic style stuff. There's multiple versions of all of those songs with Linville Thompson and Tristan Palmer, and they're all singing over the same thing. So we like to do that where the song could be anything over the top after you record the rhythm. But then we also like to write through compose things. So it's kind of a combination of the two of them, I guess. Right. Do you go in with the intention of any sort of combination of songs and feels? Because all your albums are a great journey through different styles, I guess you might call it. But I've listened to Bass Chalice probably realistically 5,000 times. And one flows to the next so perfectly. And all the albums are like that. So 
when you get in the room, do you ever say, well, we've already got one like that. Let's do another. And you're just sort of intuitively doing it or you just go in and you you write tunes. How much pre-production would need to be done in order to be able to get in the room, write a song and make it happen when you're making a whole album at once? We don't do any form of pre-production. It's we all come from the same school of reggae music. So we all speak the same language. It comes together very quickly. We write 10 songs in the first, you know, five or six hours in the studio and we record them. And then usually the next day we do those 10 songs again and make any changes that we felt when we were doing them the first time. And funny enough, I think most of the records, the order of the songs is actually the order that they're recorded in. We always kind of feel like, well, that's the way it happened the first time, so it, there must be something to it. Wow. And, you know, once in a while, like, one song will get moved somewhere just because it's whatever was in the same key. Or Lucas at Roar would gravitate towards one song and be like, oh, that should be the lead-off track. And it's like, okay, cool. You know, so that one gets moved. But generally speaking, the songs are in order how they were performed if there's 10 songs or whatever. Not all the records have 10 songs, but... You know, the Deadly Shots records, there was no pre-production. There was just an understood thing that, hey, this one's going to feature Horn. This one's going to feature Roger on keyboards. And this one's going to feature Nate on guitar. But none of the material was written before people were in the room to perform it. So the influence of Tenfa Ganja Plant, I think, is international. How much effort was put into distributing the music internationally? It's funny. In the beginning, our friend Fabian, we basically gave him a cassette tape of what we had done. We gave it to him and he was like, this is amazing. Like, this is great stuff. And he presented it to Lucas in New York, Roar Records, and he was blown away by it. And he said, can you get me the master tapes? And, you know, we were like, oh, we just got these cassette tapes, but yeah, you can have them. So... He was really into it. He didn't really know the story of it. So I think most of the early distribution can be attributed to, you know, whatever Lucas had in place at the time, which of course is vastly different than nowadays. It was 1999, I think. So they had an international distribution for Bad Brains and all the other artists on their roster. So I guess we just got fed into that. And they weren't a major label, obviously, at the time. But whatever these indie labels used to get circulated and get out there and sell records to make a living. So it goes international. There yeah. was CDs. And... Were yeah. there ever 10-foot cassettes? No. Yeah, so you recorded on cassette, but there was no commercial release cassette no the first 10 foot release actually although it wasn't credited to 10 foot was mostly spearheaded by ira jammy land records in new york city he pressed a 45 for us really yeah what is that what song did that come from one of the cassette tapes yeah good time girl and that exists somewhere. There's yeah. a limited run 45. Yeah. The first 10-foot ganja plant. Yeah, and release. that was out on 
Kevin was starting iTown Records at the time. So it, it has the iTown logo and then it says distributed by Jamie Land Records, I think was the thing. But Ira actually fronted, you know, all the money at the time to make that seven inch for us. Wow. Because every time we played New York City, we would go reggae record shopping at Jamie Land, of course. Right. And Ira was such a cool guy and involved in the scene and, you know, older than us that we looked up to him as like, him knowing the ropes of this business. Sure. So we would always go in there and load up on King Tubby and Lee Perry records. Right. And he came down to see our show at CBGB's and he was like, oh, all right, these guys are all right. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, you just brought back Lee Perry and volume one of the Roji saga, The Government of Silver City, is dedicated or livicated to the memory of Lee Scratch Perry. What about Lee Perry has influenced you over the years? I think Lee Perry shows, in the time he was making records, obviously he first started out as janitor for Studio One or whatever the stories are. And until he built the studio in his house, the famous Black Ark studio, which is really where things start going places mm -hmm. and pushing the envelope of sound and doing it with minimal equipment in a minimal studio and things like that is obviously the first gravitational point of him because here you are in a living room with minimal equipment. It's right. like, okay, you have to know your boundaries here. You're not going to get channel one type sounds mm -hmm. out of that kind of situation. Situation, especially when you don't know entirely what you're doing with the equipment. But Lee Perry relied on a different power, which wasn't necessarily the power of the recording in many ways, but the energy in the music and the vibe of the music and the song to carry it mm -hmm. instead of the technical Sure. side of it. I don't think Lee Perry was a very technical engineer. You know, scientists knew how to build amplifiers and, you know, make tubes and he could deconstruct anything and get something to resonate at 20 cycles versus 20,000 cycles. But I don't think Lee Perry was that. He could write and he could produce the stuff in a way that was appealing and different and had a vision for it. Mm. Do you think that as you're developing as a dub engineer... Are you like, okay, I want to get the sonic accuracy of a scientist and some of the madness of Lee Scratch Perry deliberately? Like we just talked about the moo sound, you know? Are yeah, there, yeah. Yeah, are there things? Yeah, that definitely. Like There's that? things that you always remember about. I mean, no one's going to deny when you hear the Congo's record, which all those sounds, as people later found out, were overdubbed over the record. It wasn't on the original release of Heart of the Congo's, but then when you hear animal sounds and things like that, that was all added over it. Yeah, of course. Once you learn how to emulate something, then you're able to move on from it and create your own thing. Or And I don't think it matters if you don't create your own thing necessarily. I don't think everything has to be groundbreaking in music. You know, a lot of people feel that way. I don't always feel that music has to be, you know, this completely 100% original thing because let's face it, Jamaican music was probably the least original form of music of many. You know, they were emulating American music in many ways. And like, if you ask Sly Dunbar, like when I saw him years ago, you know, I was like, what were you thinking when you were doing this? And he was just like, Philly soul sound. Mm. And it's like, yeah, of course. And it came out the way that it did. And Right. He told me they used to just sit there and like listen to like, 
you know, Tower of Power and Steely Dan and Philly Soul Sound Records and then try to emulate them. And of course, it's different because they come from a different thing, but that's what they were trying to do. And, you know, the way they worked on the, like scientists said, it took three years to make the Channel One drum sound. Right. That's a testament to a lot of things because... It does change over the years if you listen to it and know actually what years the stuff was recorded. It does change. But the instruments in the room and the equipment never changed through those three years. So they were able to actually work on it. And that's the same with Motown. You know, when you go into Motown, you hear stories about, you know, everything was kind of like bolted to the ground and like they didn't want it moved. They didn't want it to get stolen. And you plugged in. And that was it. That mm-hmm. was the sound of it. And that's why there's a consistency through all those records. Right. So working out of one space can give you that consistency. And also, that's how I feel like when I work on records, like even if I do a rock record, I hear my sound inside of that just because it's through that filter at the right. end. Do you think that it's important to stay consistent with your mixing strategy or do you find that you're deliberately trying to do something different each time and get where you're going? In other words, do you think that you'll often say, I want to mix this like the last record? Or do you say, I'm going to deliberately not even think about it like I've mixed anything else before. I'm going to just follow my my ear of what Mm -hmm. I want to do. Well, I'm a pretty firm believer in, I don't think many people think of it this way nowadays, but I think records are made in tracking. Mm -hmm. I don't think records are made in mixing. A lot happens in mixing, but you can't get away from what was tracked. And I think if you do try to get away from what was tracked, sonically, usually things don't come out right on the other Mm. side of it. So... The more manipulation you do, especially inside a computer or with equalization, the more skewed it gets as it goes through the process through phase and things like that. And it becomes blurry. And if you can work with the sound that was recorded, a lot of times in the end, if you mix around that instead of shaping that, you will get a more consistent sound and fuller sound. That's really interesting because it does touch on the subject of what you see your role as. As a mixing engineer, do you think that as the years have gone on that people expect you to be more involved with changing the fundamentals of the song? Do you think Mm -hmm. that it started being more about this is the record and I need you to balance it and make it sound good and then add some creativity and it's become more of here's a million tracks and people are expecting for you to do more of the heavy lifting of getting a song to sound like a song these days than they were in the past? Or how do you think the Mm -hmm. role of a mixing engineer has changed in the last 15, 20 years? Well... Even when someone sends me tracks and then their rough mix and I listen to it, I'm like, well, obviously I think I can do better than this or better to me than this. I don't think they really realize what goes into it, even when you send them something that you consider better. Mm -hmm. I think they say, wow, okay, that's a better mix than what I had. But I don't really think they understand the magnitude of, you know, the hours that went into getting it to that level. Mm -hmm. Especially in this day and age, everyone thinks they're an engineer until you put them in front of a giant SSL console and they're, you know, they don't know what's happening. Right. 
But I think in general, most people, if you ask them, they would say, I can become a sound engineer tomorrow if I want to. Yeah, but exactly. there's a little more to it than that. Yes, anyone can be a sound engineer as long as they're not deaf. But there's a lot more that goes into being a sound engineer, both on the road and in the studio, than most people know unless they get out there and do it. And working with one band, I don't care how long you work with them, it's being a sound engineer, of course, but I wouldn't say that you've had enough scenarios where you can fight your way through every situation. There's mm -hmm. a lot of different situations that happen. Just like a studio engineer, some engineers, they work out of home base studios because going to a different studio is challenging for a lot of them. Right. It's challenging for me sometimes. It's challenging for everyone, I think. Some people can make it happen anywhere. They, you know, it doesn't really phase them. But the reason they can make it happen anywhere is because they're letting the room and the space become the sound rather than force their sound onto the room or the mm. space. You know, you can't expect to go into a gymnasium sized studio and then make it sound like your home studio or, right. or something like that. If you roll with it and know your signal flow and know how different consoles work and things like that, I think the DAW has slightly skewed that. Some of these new digital consoles, like when I use them, I'm like, what? This isn't right. They're using the wrong terminology for these things that were created out of the analog domain and now they're taking that and using it to be something else inside this digital platform. And it's very confusing for someone who comes from that era of analog recording and what the books were written about in teaching analog recording and all the history coming up through, you know, 40, 50 years from Les Paul or whatever, what a bus is. And then on a digital console, a bus is something completely different. I think most people are thinking of it like, well, those kinds of people aren't using these products anymore. Mm. They've developed new terms and just made them work inside of what they feel like. And I'm sure most of the designers aren't even old enough. Sure. You know, it's probably 20, 30-year-old people designing this stuff who didn't even use that stuff. Mm -hmm. They're just designing something that works to do the job that it has to do, but they're kind of skewing what these terms meant right. of signal flow and changing it. When I started using, um, you know, like a DAW back in the day, I always went for Nuendo originally because it was set up like an analog console. Mm -hmm. It seemed like, I don't know if it was because they were German or something. So they dealt with, you know, the Neves and stuff like that. But the layout of it compared to like Pro Tools, Pro Tools is just based on recording sound. But once again, the terminology and the signal flow of like channels and stuff, it's not very intuitive if you come from a console. Whereas it seems like if you're trying to make an emulation of a console inside of a DAW, it should kind of resemble a real analog console and function similarly. Mm-hmm. You know, you should know your, if you can use an analog console, hardware analog, you know, just like a guitar pedal, when you see that plug-in, it functions the same way as the pedal. But for right. some reason, the console never made it to the digital porting or something that it functions the same way in the routing. I mean, I'm sure it was to give more function to the digital side of it, but I always felt that was confusing. And a lot of people who use Pro Tools 
they have a hard time switching to other DAWs. Because mm, they've gotten used to that. They've gotten used to Pro Tools and they didn't use analog consoles. So now this is what they know of as a recording desk. Mm -hmm. Whereas I always felt going from the console to Cubase, Cubase and Nuendo functioned very similar. And then it was easy to go to other consoles because they had slightly different things, but they're all laid out somewhat the same, inline or not or whatever. There's little differences but you could always count on, okay, this button turns on the equalizer and this one is a low shelf and mm -hmm. fundamentals. Right. You know, but in some of these new DAWs, you're like, what does this hieroglyphic symbol mean? Right. You know, it's like completely foreign stuff that obviously the people who designed it didn't even use the analog console. Right. That makes me curious about one thing and I don't know how much of your mixing is secretive or how much you would want to talk None about. None of it. None of it? Okay, all right. You do not do, in the Roji mixes, mm -hmm. a lot of automation of sends, right? No. You have a different way of putting effects on instruments. I don't know if it's different. Or you I have think a, it's logical. For anybody listening, we may have lost you with technical jargon a long time ago, but in the analog world of the old days, you'd have a knob that would send a channel to, say, a spring reverb. Correct. What you've done in the Roji music is if you're going to send, say, the lead guitar to a spring reverb, that track isn't necessarily being sent from the main track. It's a duplicated track that goes to the spring reverb. And so sure. what I think is really cool about this way of making dub is it's come from your musical experience of mixing live with a console. And you know what you want to do, but... You're cutting out parts that you want to have effects on, putting them on their own tracks, and then deleting the audio from those tracks where you don't want it to be. I think it's more common than you think, Okay, honestly. Maybe you can explain how that works, because I probably did allow some No, 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 you, you explain it perfectly. So I'm a firm believer in using the tool that does the job the best, whether it's digital or if it's analog. Being the era that we're in with music, sometimes you get fed a bunch of digital tracks. It's pretty rare that I get a two-inch tape right now right. to mix off of, sure. you know? I think the last thing I did was Adonai and I, where I got a reel of tape. Here, right. Here's the tracks. Right. Great. This is great. Cool. You know, mix on the console, spin the tape. Great. Awesome. But, you know, I don't get a lot of that stuff anymore. People don't use it. I like to use it, and I use it. But back to the original thing, the reason I started doing that was, for one, it makes it very easy to mute the effects. It makes it very easy to change the effect. It makes it very easy to recall a mix. Because a lot of mixing that I do, it's hybrid mixing, which is the tracks are being played out of the computer. I try to use the computer more as if it was a tape machine, even in recording. Just I think it brings a different creativity and flow to a session. That's an interesting thing we can talk about maybe. So another thing it does, it kind of emulates, if you look at old consoles, there isn't a lot of channels and there's buses. And in the old days, like even with the scientist mixing, he mixed a lot from groups. They would bring the tracks into the console 
And then they would use groups, you know, so they were basically mixing from four or five faders. So in a sense, they have wet, the returns of the effects are always feeding and they're pushing up the return of the effect and pulling down the dry signal. Mm-hmm. When you see scientist mix, that's what he's doing. He'll bring up the return fader and you'll hear the effect starting to come up. And then when it starts to equal the dry signal, he starts bringing down the dry signal or pulls it out quickly and the delay carries or reverb or whatever it is. So in a sense, that's what I'm doing and emulating that sound. But inside the computer, you have to do it by duplicating the track and using it as if it's sending to an effect all the time. Right. Would it be correct to say that the effects would be in the analog scientist world? They'd be a post fader because you're going to, when you bring it up, be sending it to it more? Or are those effect sends sending to those effects no matter what? In other words, they're sending all the time. He's putting effects a lot of times on groups. On the groups. And then he can choose what instrument is going to the group. Okay. That's why a lot of times you don't hear two effects at once on a lot of the old dub tracks, because if you have both the vocals and the guitars up at the same time, they're both feeding delay. And it probably was the exact same delay unit. Exactly. Right. And that brings it back to like the way things are set up with, you know, the auxes and like digital consoles. When I mix, I like to use the same reverb across all reverb things. Mm -hmm. Instead of a vocal reverb, a drum reverb, a guitar reverb, a keyboard reverb, everything should go through the plate reverb. Right. And that's the studio's plate reverb. Yeah, the studio's plate reverb or the studio's delay unit. They only had one, probably. Right. You know, I mean, most of those studios like Muscle Shoals, you know, they had one compressor in 1976. Before that, they didn't even have any. Mm -hmm. Then they had one. Here we are today. People just put compressors on it. Every single channel. Oh, that's really interesting. I equate a studio sometimes to their reverb sound, like Motown. Mm-hmm. The reverb for 20 years of it, it sounds the same. So I kind of think of it like that too, like at least from record to record. Right. In today's day and age, if you came up with a DAW like I did, and you had a million different reverbs, then you can start to think, oh, I want each cymbal splash to be a different thing. But maybe that bombards the mind instead of it being... It could be cool, too. Yeah, it could be cool. Who knows? <laughs> it could be cool, There's no too. rules. Fair enough. I do think that there's something to be said about the impact of the music. And do you consider the mental state and experience of a listener as you're doing it? Is that what you're motivated by while you're creating something? Like, oh, man, now this reverb is going to take your head off. Or is this... More than anything... Once you're in a place, you can take yourself there. It's kind of like whatever, when you smoked herb when you were 18 for the first time or 16 or whatever it was, like you remember that feeling, but you don't necessarily have to do it again to feel that way anymore Mm. because the door's been opened. You've felt it, so therefore you can feel it again. Right. And that's why, you know, I think it's good for everyone to experience that once because you only have to do it once to open the door. So, you know, I remember vividly being in situations, dark clubs when I was young and just the smell of Mm -hmm. ganja everywhere and like seeing some insane music and like how it made me feel. 
So I want people to feel that way. Mm. That's why I think people gravitate towards different mixing engineers because I think every mixing engineer is trying to make people feel a certain way. It's really interesting you say that because I do think that's part of your sonic signature too. If I put on bass chalice, it could be 15 degrees in the middle of January and my mental state is it's now 93 degrees and I'm sitting on the beach with my friends in July and I'm 17 years old. And, <laughs> yeah. and everything about that is baked into the sound for me. Yeah, sure. That it's so immediate, like a smell that you can be there. Yeah. So I think that that's, that's really beautiful. And I do want to say thank you very much for bringing your sonic signature to my music and for Always. for being willing to do that. Well, we should do a whole episode all about the, the mystique of the dub engineer and how much that is a part of the mythos of making dub. There is something to be said about the elusive nature of a lot of the greatest people ah. within this style of music. And it does make me curious about what I love is that scientists post on Facebook. So if you follow scientists, you can find them on, on Facebook and that's its own trip. But scientists is great. We had the pleasure of working with him at the Ithaca Reggae Festival. And well, there's stories there. It was highly enjoyable. We all learned so much and, you know, respect him so much. The most interesting thing for me was that it was his job. Mm. And that's the way he looked at it. He didn't have this, you know, we think of ourselves as artists and have this connection to music and the people and all that kind of stuff. It doesn't seem like he has that so much. He's in a place to do a job and he wants to do it the best that he can. Mm. And that's the most important thing. It's not about, is it Israel Vibration, Barrington Levy or anything like that. It's very much just about, I'm an engineer and I'm here to do a job. And if I have to build some crap out of whatever is in the junkyard to do my job better, I'm going to do it. Mm. That's another huge subject to talk about is the functional aspect of doing your job and doing the music. And yes, that's why I, I look up to like Steve Cropper and these guitar players yeah. that they say, man, it's about the craft of guitar and Tommy Tedesco. And yeah. sometimes they're more who I'm looking up to than even a Jeff Beck or, or a Jimi Hendrix. Right for a period of time because they got up in the morning, they put on a tie and they went to work as a guitar player. Mm -hmm. And there's something extremely cool about the fact that it was a craft. And of course, they're amazing artists in their own right. But Consistency. Yeah, and they could do it every day like any of us get up and go to work. You know, that's one thing that was very ingrained on me with the early John Brown's Body crew or even Tribulations before John Brown's Body is they had a very strong work ethic for consistency. Mm -hmm. And I always thought of it like they would put on 250 shows a year or whatever it was, and they were all like really high level. Even when the show was maybe flat or someone was sick or it was in a club that they couldn't hear well on stage or bad monitors or whatever, luckily that stuff's changed over these years where performance spaces have gotten a little better as far as the cheap gear being able to do a job a little better than we were talking. There's like, you know, you're lucky if the tweeters worked inside of these monitors or anything. So they were subjected to brutal stuff, but they always had a consistency that was respectful. You know, sometimes it would fall 5% down and sometimes there'd be some magic happening, but it wasn't a giant sway of the needle as far as like good and bad shows. Mm. And I think that's something that every band should strive for, not necessarily like waiting for a magical experience to happen, but getting the 
consistency of the show up to a certain level where if magic happens, great. You might not even notice it that much, but Mm -hmm. you'll never drop down and really put on like a a sour show. Right. There's a consistency and and martial arts is a thread with their Lee Perry or these type of things. Night after night, there's a Zen quality to being able mm-hmm. to have that discipline. Mm-hmm. If there's one thing that you have that I think we've all seen and acknowledged is the consistency through your output. And congratulations, you have a Grammy now. Oh, thank you. So that's thank awesome. You. But um, I think consistency is the name of the game. I hope that we can be consistently making some awesome Roji records as these Roji issues come for out. for life. Yeah, <laughs> we're going to do it. Well, thank you so much for your time, man. Thank you. I can't, thank you. Thank can't you. say it enough of, of bringing your your personality and your, your music and your vision and your time into the music. So thank you for that. And thank you for teaching me about all this and for sharing with us what you know and what you've done because uh, we all over the world appreciate your craft. Peace on earth. All right. Thank you, brother. See you next time. Thank you for your visit to the Roji universe. We look forward to seeing you again soon.